Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together again with open hearts, minds, and the scriptures set before us to consider the transforming truths that we find written in your precious word. May it be a blessing to us, Father. May we be transformed by the word that we consider. And uh, our minds be filled to overflowing with your precious truth. Thank you, Father, for watching over us all uh, through many years and weeks and these last few that uh, have shown the resurgence of this evil threat that's been brought upon the world here, this virus, and how it's uh, now attacking a great many more, even many who've already been infected by it in the past and recovered. Father, we just pray that you'd be with those that are suffering so much. And there are so many on our list in that regard. Father, we're thankful as well for uh, many blessings in this life that come our way, and certainly for this winter and how it's been warmer than uh, usual. And certainly that's been a benefit for us here, at least in the Northeast, hopefully for others as well, further south. So, Father, as we uh, look forward, we're thinking of our nation and its its movement so rapidly for so long now, but especially recently, away from the fundamental principles the nation was founded on that gave freedom and liberty uh, under the law, at least, and certainly was a great blessing to believers who could minister and uh, reach out and, and uh, gather together freely. So, Father, I just pray that you might preserve these liberties though many are threatening to take them away. And I pray, Father, that you would deliver our nation from these evil, evil ones who seek to uh, rule us by executive power and uh, authority. And may they be clearly revealed for who they are and who they serve. And may those that would speak truth, most importantly, spiritual truth, also truth in other areas that they might be raised up and begin given great boldness to speak whatever the consequence and surely as we've seen there are consequences to speaking truth and uh, identifying the enemy for for who he is father bless us now as we open your word and and may we be changed by it in christ's name amen especially for those that weren't with us the last weeks as we've been going through what I consider to be the the proper introduction to our general theme here, which is how in Genesis, theme by theme, the foundations of our faith are revealed. That's, That's the general theme. And we spent three studies on how our Lord himself had gone back to Genesis often in his uh, earthly ministry and uh, made it very clear that Genesis is the sacred, inspired, and and 
perfect history, really, as it is written there. So it's even the earliest chapters. So that's uh, our Lord's teaching. We spent three uh, teachings on the Apostle Paul and how the same was true for him, that uh, Genesis was for Paul absolutely foundational, and he often referred back to it, even those very first chapters. And now today, I'd like us to look at Peter's two letters and how it's true as well for Peter that he relied upon and uh, taught very clearly that Genesis was the inspired word of God. Next time, we'll look at the other writers of the New Testament, and that would be uh, James, Jude, uh, and uh, John. Who am I leaving out? Mm. James, Jude, and John. Yes. Uh, Were they all also make the same uh, bold declarations that uh, Genesis is fundamental, underlies the faith once delivered to the saints. Of course, the modern contemporary message, even, even amongst many Christian teachers, is quite otherwise that... Uh, Genesis, especially the earliest chapters, should not be taken that literally. That's very common in our current day. Sadly, uh, that's the case. So many are not hearing what we're going to be presenting here this morning. Now, last time, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this, uh, the the materials are out there on libertymessenger.org. You can either listen to those last messages or read the handouts to see how the Apostle Paul taught that fundamental doctrine really is it's built on top of a foundation and that foundation is found in Genesis. And I think you were probably quite encouraged to see that, how that uh, Paul refers back to the creation in a number of different ways not only of the universe and all, but of mankind. And uh, he he refers back to uh, other portions of Genesis, uh, often refers back to Abraham. And he refers back to them in a a way that's quite revealing. And in some ways, you might find it quite really amazing, uh, because even the most uh, profound doctrines that Paul taught concerning grace and uh, its essence, essence of grace, uh, he goes back to Genesis to show how even there in Genesis, there are foundational principles laid down that need to be understood if we're going to understand how God is working today. And uh, we especially focused in on what I called the the doctrine of the federal headship. In Adam, there was sin and death, and that passed upon all. In Christ, there was uh, 
righteousness and life that passed upon all those that believed, right? And that federal headship doctrine is very central to Paul's teachings, of course, and we really have to understand it or we'll be terribly confused about what God is doing today. Okay, so that's enough review. Let, let's uh, move ahead. Those letters there, after the letter to the Hebrews in our New Testament, are called general epistles by most commentators. And so those include First and Second Peter, James, Jude, and John. And then we could add, uh, for just for completeness, the book of Revelation, also written, of course, by John, right? And in them, there are many references to Genesis. In fact, 15 different references back to Genesis in those letters in, in the book of Revelation. However, by comparison, if we look in Paul's letters, in Paul's letters, there are more than 20 references to the book of Genesis. And in the letter to the Hebrews alone, there are 11 references to Genesis. So um, isn't that quite quite amazing? <laughs> oh, my. Um, nearly as many references in chapter 11 of Hebrews to Genesis as in all the other writings by all those other authors. Another interesting thing is that in all of those other letters, First and Second Peter, Jude, First, um, Second, Third John, James, and Revelation, there are, as far as I can tell, no direct quotations, no direct quotations from Genesis except one verse, um, and that's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, in the letter of James, where James is actually, I think, uh, making a very strange statement about justification by faith, but we'll get to that next time, Lord willing, okay? It's only one direct quotation. Uh, many references, though, as I've said, uh, 19 others that are just references. Sometimes just allusions without any wording at all taken out of the book of Genesis, just allusions to that teaching. Well, in Peter's letters, we find many references to Genesis, as I've already said. We'll dedicate our teaching today to them. One thing I'd like to say before we go into this is that there's a considerable difference in the overall nature of these letters that Peter writes compared to the letters that Paul writes. There's a considerable difference in their nature, and uh, and I think it's largely explained by a totally different expected audience. So. Who uh, was expected to be reading Paul's letters? Well, he wrote them to the churches, right? And the churches were largely Gentile and increasingly Gentile 
And that is uh, the focus of the Apostle Paul to people who didn't did not generally speaking already have a knowledge of the Old Testament, certainly not of Genesis. Right. But Peter's audience is quite different. Peter assumes that they all know very much about the Old Testament and, in fact, that they know well uh, Genesis. And so what Peter is doing is reminding them of what they already had learned. Okay, and Paul isn't so much reminding them uh, in a few cases where he's already taught them. He does remind them, but otherwise he's teaching it just as if they had never heard before. Right. So. Very big difference there. Peter is often reminding his audience of what stands written and uh, how they must never forget it and never turn away from it. And really, the exhortations in both First and Second Peter are all about uh, a time coming, which he calls the last days, when uh, there would be many who turn away from the truth and uh, how important it is that believers never do that, that they always remain committed to what has been revealed and not buy in to what the false teachers are teaching. Okay. Okay, so what is our outline today? Uh-huh. Well, Peter's main subject is obedience to the Lord God and how that should be the priority and how Genesis witnesses that okay obedience to the lord god should be our priority he says and in so many ways and places and therefore those that have turned aside should be ignored separated from should have nothing to do with them Uh, they are promoting satan's lies and not the truth of god so don't be deceived that's his message And how does he go about teaching that? Uh, He goes back to Genesis over and over again. And that's what we'll see today. There are really uh, five points to our message today. First of all, the Lord God demonstrated his willingness to judge mankind in Genesis. Okay, so Peter's going to make a big point of that. In his letters, the Lord God demonstrated his willingness to judge mankind. Uh, Secondly, but the Lord was willing to save some. So he's willing to judge mankind, but he's willing also to save some. And he proved that even in the greatest judgment of all, which was the Genesis flood. (laughs) Oh, my. Thirdly, the flood of Noah the Genesis flood was worldwide and therefore a perfect example of the judgment to come. So Peter's focused on the judgment to come. He goes back and looks at Noah's flood because it was worldwide. The, the coming judgment will be worldwide and affecting every, every person uh, as well, right? So uh, therefore take note. Peter writes so strongly in his letters. Fourthly, the Lord God demonstrated also his judgments in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Peter goes back to consider the Genesis account there. 
concerning Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction by the Lord God. And as you know, also the salvation of a few. It was Lot. It would have been his wife, but she turned back, right? And his daughters. So Lot and his daughters were saved, but the rest were lost in the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so let's consider all of that. It's quite a lot to look into. Peter's letters are pretty short. I mean, you could read them very quickly. And I recommend highly that we do read them over and over just to get the whole import of them. But uh, the main points, uh, at least some of the main points, and really most of them, I'm going to outline for you today. Remember, our purpose in all of this introduction to Genesis and the themes there isn't to get deeply into the doctrines. It really, in most cases, isn't that at all. It's rather to see how the authors rely on Genesis and its inspiration. So, yes, there will be many questions perhaps unanswered, but uh, the real issue is, did the authors of Scripture consider Genesis to be authentic, reliable, and the sacred history of those events, even those first events uh, as creation was brought into being. Okay, so the key words for Peter will be remember, or alternatively, never forget. Okay, so the first point, the Lord God demonstrated his willingness to judge mankind in Genesis. Now, Peter's writing looks ahead, as I said before. I mean, he's, he's focused on what he calls the last days that are coming. He says those days are coming. Uh, there will be many that have turned aside from the, the revealed word of God, and they'll be promoting uh, lies on every side. And uh, believers have to be aware of that, ready for that, prepared, and uh, know the truth of God well so that they can refuse and not become apostate as others will. His exhortations are very concrete, extremely strongly worded, and often based squarely on the Genesis account. Let's begin to see that. The first reading, Patty, in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, notice I'm not taking these References in Peter in order is a different plan that I have here. It's more theme-oriented in Peter and not chronology or, 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 or the exact sequence of the verses. So we're starting like here in 2 Peter 3. But So, Patty, 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the second, in this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, 
walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Okay, thank you. Uh, Notice verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? So the false teachers are saying, there's no evidence that uh, the Lord is coming to judge, right? Um, Everything has continued just as they were from the beginning, right? That's uh, in our current day called the uniformitarian principle. And uh, it is uh, at the foundation of all evolutionary teaching that all the changes uh, that are seen today are merely incremental and it's always been such. And the great cataclysm of the flood uh, never occurred. (laughs) That's uh, at the foundation of evolutionary thinking and modern philosophy. And so that's what's being taught in the schools, for example. It's no wonder that many have turned away from the Lord or never have considered uh, that they're in need of salvation, considering this, this kind of idea, right? But what is Peter teaching here? He says, God is willing to judge. And uh, all we have to do is look at the scripture to see it. He says in verses five and six, this they willingly are ignorant of. So these that believe everything is just incrementally changing very, very slowly. They're willingly ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. In other words, they were created by God. Okay. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water, right? Uh, water, water everywhere, but then there is the, the, the land, right? <laughs> and that's where mankind dwells, right? And then verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So God did judge the world. That's a direct reference to Noah's flood. Peter's purpose, as I said before, is really to look forward, to exhort his readers to prepare for what is yet coming, which is another judgment, another universal judgment, right? Yet future. What is Peter's proof text for that? He goes back to Genesis, that God is willing, it's his prerogative to judge mankind. He's already done it, right? his prerogative to judge mankind again as well. And Peter says he shall. And he says, be ready. Okay. Okay. Um, Let's uh, read. uh, Anne, if you could read for us. uh, It's just this one verse, but it's a very clear statement of what I've already said, that God is willing to judge mankind. So, and Genesis 6, 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Thank you, and so <laughs> it's very specific at this point. So 
This is written in the days of Noah, and the Lord God says uh, the, the, the period of time yet remaining before judgment is only 120 years. <laughs> so Noah will, within 20 years, begin to preach boldly and to build an ark, and it will take him 100 years to do so. And his message is the evangelistic message of the day, which is that God is going to judge the world. Make sure you take note, right? Because the world was corrupted. Another verse a little later in the same chapter, Genesis chapter 6, verse 12 says, And God looked upon the earth, and behold... It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So God is willing to judge the world. It's his prerogative. Now, there are other references or allusions back to Genesis in Peter's letters concerning this willingness of the Lord God. But I'm, I'm going to leave it at that for now because I want to go on to the next point, which is that the Lord was also willing to save some. Not only going to judge, he is willing to save, right? And uh, Peter goes back to Genesis to prove that, right? And so uh, we find that stated very, very clearly in uh, one verse there. In Second Peter two verse five, Kristen, would you please read Second Peter two five for us? And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay, thank you. Um, spared not the old world, so the Lord God, yes, He brought judgment in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, but he saved Noah, right? And so God was willing to save some. Noah's mentioned here. So God would bring judgment upon the world and did, but not without a, a salvation plan. <laughs> there was a plan included in all of that to save some. Uh, there were not that many, and we'll see how many in a moment. <laughs> As we go on to uh, Gail's reading there in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Gail? But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, so God's willing to save some, he says here in very uh, direct and concrete terms, that uh, if if the coming judgment seems to be delayed, 
It could be delayed a year, a uh, hundred years, a thousand years, right? Uh, don't think that somehow the Lord will not judge mankind because it has been prophesied it will occur, right? According to his schedule. And consider this delay, as it were, as a time to come to repentance, right? So it is the mercy of God that he has not already brought that judgment forth. And so uh, God is willing to save a remnant. And uh, in the next uh, verses that we'll consider today, we'll see exactly how that was done in Noah's day and how it would be done, therefore, in a similar way in the future. Okay, so how was it accomplished in, in Noah's day? And how does Peter exhort those reading this letter regarding that, uh, that coming judgment? Okay, um, for that reading, we have uh, Linda, First Peter, chapter 3, verses 17 through 22. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The light figure were unto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the flesh, filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is who has gone on to heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Thank you, Linda. So Peter <clears throat> writing to Jews concerning the coming judgment. And that coming judgment, it wasn't the rapture or something like that. It was at the end of the tribulation period <laughs> that he was looking forward to there, <clears throat> right? So um, we, we see clearly revealed through this reference of Peter back to Noah and what happened at that time as God brought judgment to the world and saved eight. Saved eight. Not millions, eight. Of course, there weren't millions, perhaps, on the earth in that day. We don't know how many. Certainly a significant number, but uh, he saved eight. So God is willing to save, not only to judge. So uh, if we kept reading in Genesis, we could read uh, chapter six, seven, and eight. All of those verses would be proof texts, really, for Peter's point here, that God not only is willing to bring judgment, but also willing to save. And so Peter, in his exhortation, depends on the truthfulness of those Genesis accounts, right? For him, that was sacred history, once revealed and preserved by the Lord God for the benefit of those that would follow, right? Well, that brings us down to the third point, the issue is how widespread was the judgment? <laughs> so the third point, the flood of Noah 
was worldwide and therefore a perfect example of the judgment yet to come, okay? So Peter's thinking when he's writing these letters about the coming judgment and how that's going to be universal, right? <clears throat> uh, be prepared for it, he writes, and uh, don't turn aside from the, the uh, teaching of the Lord and his word. Uh, this is the universal coming, and uh, it's serious indeed. So he goes back to Genesis to sort of substantiate his view that God does bring universal judgments. It's not just a limited kind of thing. Now, in our current day, when uh, the flood is reinterpreted as only a limited thing uh, by many, even in the Bible schools and colleges and seminaries, uh, they really should take these scriptures to heart, shouldn't they? Because they are so clear, so clearly written. And God's word on this isn't subject to debate, really. Okay, so let's read then concerning that. Stephen, if you'd read about that flood event and how universal it was. Gen Genesis chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle, and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, and all that was in the dry land died, and every living substance was destroyed, which is upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and, and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. Thank you, Stephen. So you see how universal it was? <laughs> Uh, over and over here, he repeats that, that it covered the whole earth. It destroyed all in whom was the breath of life. And uh, that's just uh, to be taken by faith, right? It is true. There was a universal flood that uh, had the effect that God had ordained, which was to destroy humanity, except for those that were in the ark, right? Okay. And there's another verse. I'd like to go ahead and in chapter 8 of Genesis and read that. Speaks to the same theme very clearly, although really the entirety of chapter 8 speaks to this theme of how universal the flood was. Uh, it's repeated or alluded to in many ways there in chapter 8, but verse 21 says it explicitly. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, 
for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every thing living as I have done. So it's clear. Uh, Peter has an example here to use in exhorting his readers concerning the coming judgment, right? And how God is willing to save some. Praise his name <laughs> for sure, right? Okay, now the fourth uh, point, because Peter's not finished yet. He has more to write, <laughs> and uh, he's going to write about a time. It's much later than the flood when uh, God brings the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, two great cities, uh, and uh, shows his willingness to judge them, but saving a remnant, in this case only Lot, and his two daughters. So three are saved and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are lost, including Lot's wife. Okay. Um, so we could read this all, but I think um, you, you should take time later to read uh, these first nine verses in Second Peter 2. But I'll just read a few of the verses. Uh, I think I'll start in Second uh, Peter 2, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly and delivered just Lot, righteous Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So, it stands written, Peter writes, that God also brought judgment on two great cities. And so, it's the prerogative of the Lord God to bring judgment upon mankind and hear all of these examples. <laughs> now, where is uh, Peter going in Genesis for this? Well, of course, he's going to Genesis chapter 19 verses uh, 1 through 38, <laughs> our chapter, really. You know, when we consider Sodom and Gomorrah, we really can't consider it well without thinking of what the Lord himself uh, said on one occasion. You remember, uh, it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, and, uh, and that whole context. But uh, these words really stand out. I'm sure no one... Uh, 
who's known the Lord long at all fails to remember these words. Those words were, remember Lot's wife. <laughs> sort of summarizes it all. Lot's wife was not prepared for the coming judgment. Right? She loved this world. Lot, on the other hand, was prepared. And even his daughters didn't look back. So, I mean, it's interesting that in that regard, they were obedient to what the angel had commanded them. Right? He said, do not look back. Right? Lot's wife did, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. In other words, she became an example. And I'm not sure about this, but I've been told and I've read that there is a pillar of salt outside the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah, even to this day. Well, so Peter was strongly exhorting his readers concerning the coming judgment, but to do so, he went back to Genesis. The judgments there and how God had saved some, right? And was willing to to save uh, many still. Now, that's not all he writes. He actually writes something that's somewhat lighter in its tone, you might think. (laughs) Somewhat lighter. (laughs) Uh, And that's in 1 Peter chapter Chapter three, (laughs) Um, the context of this is that uh, Peter is is speaking directly to different groups of believers and he he highlights uh, the men, he highlights, you know, the husbands and the wives and so forth, sort of like what Paul does in a number of different letters. And he refers to Sarah. I'd like you to read just that verse, Stephen. First Peter, chapter three, verse six. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. (laughs) Okay, so there would be many challenges in life that would come. And those challenges would be very uh, difficult to endure. That's what Peter is writing. And so there's going to be challenges to marriages and families on every side. And the order that God had established uh, with the husband and the wife needed to be obeyed and so and, and honored. And so wives are to honor their husbands as Sarah did Abraham. And so he goes back to Genesis for that. And where does he go in Genesis? Well, it's an amazing passage. I'd like Elizabeth to read it for us so we see the whole context of it. So, Elizabeth, would you please read Genesis 18, verses 6 through 15. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, and he hastened to dress it. 
And he took the butter and milk and the calf, which he had dressed, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of woman. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have the pleasure of my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore old Sarah la- the wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a sure surely bear a child which I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, that's quite a quite a passage, isn't it? Uh, and what does Peter take from this? That uh, well, Sarah <laughs> had some trouble accepting what we read earlier. There, I didn't read. We didn't read it today, but it was the angel of the Lord that appeared, <laughs> along with two others. And uh, Abraham seemed to take note of this, and that's why he responded the way he did. But when the promise was given by the angel of the Lord that Sarah would have a son, she laughed. <laughs> and there's much much disagreement as to exactly why she laughed, whether she laughed in unbelief or whether she laughed in faith. Hmm? Uh, but uh, in, anyway, the, the bottom line here is that Sarah will uh, fit into the plan of God here and bring forth a son. And, of course, that son will be Isaac, right? The son of the promise that uh, figures so importantly throughout uh, the Bible, right? So, did Peter consider the Genesis account to be true and authoritative? Well, he certainly did. He certainly did. Otherwise, he would have never gone back to these scriptures to refer to them as foundational, really, for his teaching, right? That God would judge the world. He would save some. And uh, the principles laid down by the Lord God needed to be taken note of in living. Uh, Otherwise, one would not be ready for the coming judgment, right? So if Genesis is not inspired, both of Peter's letters really fall to the ground and lose their meaning, purpose, and power. That's the bottom line here. So what's the conclusion we must draw? Well, whether it's the Lord Jesus or the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter, the Genesis account is fundamental. Right. And the exhortations that Peter gives are directly based on that account. He reminds his readers so that they might never forget the lessons 
that are taught there. The lessons have to do with faith and preparedness, right? That one is fortified in one's spirit and ready and able to endure the challenges that come, right? That's the message of Peter as he teaches the Jews regarding the coming judgments, right? So there are some common themes with the Apostle Paul and many differences in these teachings, but uh, we're not going into all the differences today. But you do see they both go back to Genesis, and Genesis is absolutely foundational. So today, when you hear many turning against the fundamental principles revealed in Genesis, be ready to speak forth truth. It's so, so very important, right? And believers are increasingly willing to turn aside, especially from those earlier chapters, but really from the truth of God in general, as it's taught there in the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. So praise God for his word and what the blessings are there that uh, we may have as we look into it or so so very very many aren't they praise the lord god for revealing this truth to us today and may we not forget it either let's pray heavenly father thank you thank you for gathering us today and what a blessing it's been and father i pray that we wouldn't forget these precious words of truth For nearly all of us here, except perhaps the very youngest, but even for them, I think, Father, all are already well aware of what your word teaches there in Genesis. And we praise you for that, Heavenly Father. And may we be a witness and a testimony and a light in the darkness to boldly proclaim what stands written forever. Regarding your willingness to judge and to save and the many blessings of walking in the light of your word, whatever the challenges may be. So, Father, as we look forward also, I know the challenges, we all know and sense that the challenges may be very great. We'll be called forth to stand boldly and speak your grace with kindness to all you bring into our midst. And we'll thank you, Father, for that great hope. It passes all understanding. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.